I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. This podcast is an exploration of ghostly folklore and its relationship to the cultures that produce it. I don't know where or when you are listening to this, but I hope that it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 61, Robert Johnson Reconsidered. Before I start, I just want to make a quick note that we have been using some new equipment and are experiencing some audio problems as a result. Hopefully this will not impact your enjoyment of the episode, but I thought it best to give you fair warning up front. Longtime listeners will remember that I covered the story of Robert Johnson way back in episode two, in which I discussed some legends of musicians who had allegedly made demonic pacts. In that episode, I mentioned that the story of Robert Johnson touched on a range of issues in American history, and I then proceeded to utterly fail to discuss those matters, which is unfortunate as the story of Robert Johnson does indeed touch on the history of race in a number of different ways, as well as the history of music, of folk magic, and of religion. All of these things are worth discussing, and so a new episode was needed to fix that earlier oversight. Another problem is that, like most people who discuss Robert Johnson, I got some of my facts wrong. This is pretty common, as his life was not particularly well documented, and a lot of people have let a small number of comments from prominent musicians fill the gaps. The fact is, however, that there is a lot of information available about Robert Johnson. It's just hard to find. However, I now have more at my fingertips, and so I think it's time to revisit Mr. Johnson and the legend of his meeting with the devil at the crossroads. The legend of Robert Johnson is as follows. This story is one of the great spooky tales of American folklore, and it is a rich story that touches on music, race, class, and religion. While the story itself is almost certainly nothing more than a tall tale woven around a real person, it tells us a good deal about the various fault lines along which American culture is often split. Shortly before midnight, sometime in the late 1920s or possibly as late as the mid-1930s, a good harmonica player but lousy guitarist by the name of Robert Johnson began a ritual to summon the devil at a crossroads near Dockery Plantation in Mississippi. As part of the ritual, he played his guitar. Shortly after the stroke of midnight, a large man with skin and clothing as black as coal approached, took the guitar, tuned it, played a short melody, and handed it back. Johnson began to play again and was shocked to discover that he was now highly skilled. He sounded amazing. He looked for the coal-black man, but that strange person had vanished. Johnson soon discovered that he was now a brilliant guitarist on any guitar that he picked up, not just the one that had been used in the ritual. His newfound skill brought him success. He became a popular guitarist and singer at many of the juke joints in the American South. He also found himself popular with the ladies, but he knew that there was a debt to be paid and that the devil would quite literally collect his due. In exchange for his talent, Johnson had pledged his soul to the devil, and he would burn for eternity after his death. Robert Johnson wrote and performed songs with the usual blues subject matter of hard women, harder working conditions, difficult lives, and the need for relief but he also wrote and performed other songs. Songs about bad dealings at crossroads, songs about being pursued by demonic hounds, and songs about the devil coming to get him. Some hold that he was writing songs based on the folklore of the region, which makes sense as the American South certainly has plenty of such stories. However, others claim that the songs were much more personal and that he was trying to tell people about what he had done. One day, in August 1938, Johnson began behaving strangely. People reported seeing him walking on all fours and howling like a dog. 
He'd been working as a musician at a dance hall in Greenwood, Mississippi at the time, and despite his odd behavior, he showed up for work that night and performed as normal. Later on, he fell ill and suffered from painful convulsions that lasted for three days. Finally, he died. Some say that he was poisoned by a jealous husband. Again, he was popular with the ladies, and not all of those ladies were single. Others have said that he simply dropped dead without cause. Regardless of how it went down, the stories say that the devil had made good on his part of the bargain, and now expected Robert Johnson to pay the bill. Commentary as I described in the intro, Robert Johnson is a man more mythologized than really studied. Musicians, especially guitarists, know him and his music and have often studied the music closely. But even those who consider themselves blues connoisseurs often know more fiction than fact about Robert Johnson. There are a number of reasons for this. The biggest is that, even though Robert Johnson was a prominent blues musician of his time, this was an age where all but the most famous black musicians were only really known locally, not nationally or globally. The few musicians who actually attained major star status were typically involved in music forms considered more respectable than the blues. The role of blues music in the black communities of the American South is important to the story of Robert Johnson. The blues were viewed as crude and controversial because they discussed sex, drugs, and violence in a way that was shocking at the time. While many blues lyrics look either bizarre or tame to us now, it's because most of us don't know the slang of the southern black communities of the 1930s. Once you learn what some of the terms mean, you quickly realize that the blues is pretty raw and unfiltered. For example, many blues songs mention having a writer with you, which seems pretty tame like someone who travels with you or a passenger in your car. But the term rider actually referred to a casual female sexual partner to whom you had no commitment. Now you know, and anytime you hear a blues song talking about having your rider with you, and this is a very common motif, you can put it in that context. To the listeners of the time, this slang would have made perfect sense, which is why there are many references in historical documents to the blues being dismissed as devil music and not suited to proper, respectable people, whether those people were black or white. The idea that the blues might be considered controversial or dirty likely seems strange to a modern person, whose idea of the blues is largely informed by acts who gained prominence in the 50s and 60s, such as B.B. King and Buddy Guy, or white performers who worked in the blues tradition, such as Stevie Ray Vaughan and Eric Clapton. In addition, the various modern folk music revivals often resulted in Delta blues being placed alongside such disparate artists as Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul, and Mary. The melding of styles has made blues seem either like a heavily poetic form of music, which it can certainly be, but isn't always, or a much more family-friendly genre than it actually is. To say that blues in the 1930s was thought of in very much the same way that rap was in the early 90s is not an exaggeration, nor is it a sign of how quaint and naive people were back then. 1930s era blues and 1990s era rap covered many of the same topics with similar levels of frankness. In addition, both are styles of music that came out of black communities were initially performed primarily by black musicians for black audiences before eventually becoming mainstream. As such, most white audiences were only aware of the genres when something moved out of the black community and into the white, or if some aspect of the music was written up as something scary and published in newspapers. Blues was often genuinely shocking and often very subversive. However, this music has been given the veneer of respectability by time and actual respectability by people eventually realizing that it, much like rap, actually had some rather important things to say about the lives of the musicians and their audiences. Also like rap, blues was very, very popular. It was played in dance halls, in small gathering spots for drinking and dancing known as jukes or juke joints, 
and could often be found in the automated record players found in many establishments. These devices would, in the 1940s, come to be known as jukeboxes. As popular as blues was, blues musicians were not well paid and their lives were not stable. They traveled from place to place performing wherever they could, at parties, at juke joints, at dance halls, and even prominent blues musicians could often be found busking in the streets. Because the pay was so poor, they often had to have some other form of regular employment. And the sharecropper, who was also a blues man, was very common. In doing research on this episode, I had to conclude that most blues musicians either had a strong compulsion to be a musician, and this was simply the only way they could do it, or the rough life on the road was simply the best of a set of bad options. Regardless, there were many men and a few women who took this life on, and while the music was popular and the musicians were in demand, they were also seen as shifty and untrustworthy which both added to their mystique and also limited their options in life. This world of the Ramblin' Blues Man is the world in which Robert Johnson lived all of his adult life. Most people, when not actively engaged in telling spooky stories, will readily dismiss the notion that Robert Johnson sold his soul for the ability to play guitar. But there is much about him that is widely accepted that is, in fact, nonsense. For example, it is often said that he had spent his entire life prior to his musical career as a sharecropper, that he never left the rural South and always stayed close to where he was born, namely an isolated spot in the Mississippi Delta, that he had little musical ability with the guitar until he suddenly became great, and that he was illiterate. These claims are at best partially true, and many are flatly false. Here are some real facts. Robert Johnson was born in 1911 to Noah Johnson and Julia Majors in Hazelhurst, Mississippi, which was a rural town populated by farmers, including many sharecroppers. However, Robert had no recollection of Noah because when he was very young, his parents split up and his mother sent Robert and his siblings to live with her first husband, Charles Dodds, in Memphis, Tennessee. Charles, who had by this time changed his name to Charles Spencer, had remarried and had another family, but he nonetheless accepted Robert in and raised him for the first part of his life. He saw to it that young Robert attended school and exposed Robert to much of what Memphis had to offer, including its vibrant music scene. Although Robert had no genetic relation to Charles Spencer, by all accounts, the two did forge a strong parent-child relationship, and Robert considered all of Spencer's other children as his own siblings, both those to whom he was genetically related and to whom he was not. Robert would routinely return to Memphis throughout his life, and he always made time for this family, showing a large degree of devotion to them. The fact that he attended school is particularly important for dismantling the myth that he was illiterate and lacked musical training. In reality, he had received a primary school education and could read, and by many accounts was a voracious reader and was known to keep a notebook in which to write down musical ideas as he was beginning his career in the blues. And schools in Memphis at the time included music education. The music education was not high level any more than it would be in a modern elementary school but it meant that he was exposed to a lot of concepts and elements of music alongside what he learned from listening to musicians performing in Memphis. Robert doesn't appear to have attended high school, and he certainly did not attend college, but the portrait of him as an illiterate sharecropper with no musical training is simply false. When Robert was around 11 or 12, his mother married a sharecropper by the name of Will Willis, known locally as Dusty, and she took Robert from the Spencer family home and out to rural Arkansas, where he was expected to work the farm and help support the household. He had, in essence, been taken from the only family he really knew and the urban environment to which he was accustomed and dropped down into a place with hard manual labor and few educational opportunities. The family moved across the Mississippi River to Robinsonsville, Mississippi, where they continued as sharecroppers on a plantation. Johnson rebelled against Dusty and the labor that he was expected to do. He was focused on his music, bringing a harmonica into the field with him, which kept him from working. When it became clear that this would not get him out of working, 
he fashioned a harmonica holder out of bailing wire to allow him to play while he engaged in manual labor, though by most accounts his work was still slowed and inefficient even with his hands free. He built a diddly bow, a crude musical instrument comprised of two strings or wires nailed to a board or a wall where sliding items, usually glass bottles, were used for changing the pitch, and he would experiment with it to learn to play tunes whenever he was able. Eventually, with the help of his half-sister, he got his hands on a guitar and began learning how to play. Far from the untalented and unskilled guitarist that Johnson is typically portrayed to be, he in fact appears to have dedicated himself and learned quickly. By age 15, he was showing a clear competency in music. He learned to play folk songs, spirituals, and much of the popular music of the day. He reportedly had an amazing ability to pick up tunes and memorize songs. He began to play for local dances, busk in the streets, and play at jukes, small and often shady establishments where black musicians played for largely black audiences, whenever he had the opportunity. His preference for music over farm labor continued to create tension between himself and Dusty, who would often beat Robert to try to motivate him to stop playing music and work more in the fields. And so, in the late 1920s, while he was still a teenager, Robert began traveling to whatever performance venues he could find, and after a short time, he left home and began life as a traveling musician. He would occasionally return to stay with his mother and Dusty, but he seemed to prefer either traveling or spending time with the Spencer family in Memphis. It would take a good deal of time to get into the details of what is known of Robert's life at this point, but what's important to understand is that by this time he was beginning to rub shoulders with the bluesmen of his day, people like Willie Brown and Son House. He was already working as a professional musician, and while he didn't yet have the knack for playing the blues, especially using a bottleneck slide, he was perfectly capable of holding his own as a player of a wide range of music. Robert did settle down for a time and got married, but his wife died in childbirth, and he went back to rambling. He would be married at least one more time, and he fathered at least one son out of wedlock. However, the experience of losing his first wife and child, coupled with having his in-laws blame his musical career for their deaths, either by his playing the blues specifically or because he was away while she was dying, seemed to change something in him. After his first wife's death, Johnson returned to the life of the wandering musician, but his relations with other people were often marked as strange. He was, at times, astoundingly generous and kind, while at other times he was astoundingly cruel. He would often vanish without letting anyone know where he was going, and he appeared to be either disinterested or unaware of many social niceties. Over the next several years, he was traveling from town to town and venue to venue practicing his trade, continuing to meet and seduce women, rubbing shoulders and learning from other musicians, and developing a severe drinking habit that would eventually cause him a set of health problems. Around 1931, he met and spent an extended time living with the blues guitarist Ike Zimmerman who was generally regarded as a master of blues music, though he left behind no recordings for modern audiences to consider. Zimmerman began teaching Johnson to play the blues, and they often practiced in a graveyard. According to Zimmerman's daughter, he played there simply because it was quiet, but he would often jokingly tell people that he was playing for the ghosts and witches. It appeared to be the case that some of Robert Johnson's lessons took place in the graveyard, but they also took place in the family home and at various venues where the two would play. Following his time with Ike Zimmerman, Robert Johnson revisited some of his old haunts and impressed the other blues players, including Son House, whose recollections of Robert Johnson often formed the backbone of Johnson's legend. In 1936 and again 1937, Johnson traveled to San Antonio and then to Dallas, Texas to record several singles that constitute all of his known discography. Some of the records sold well, others did not, but their presence in the newly developing jukeboxes and their radio play brought him a degree of renown that helped him attract an audience. For the rest of his life, he continued traveling, often with other musicians, but frequently on his own. His pattern was consistent. Arrive in a town, identify places where he could play, 
arrange to perform in those locations and busk on the street for both additional money and to advertise the show where he would be playing. His travels took him well out of the South, and he spent time in Chicago, in Detroit, where he would appear on the radio playing gospel music along with his traveling companions at the time, possibly into Canada, and eventually to New York, where his attempts to get onto an on-air talent show met with failure. Those who traveled with him commented on his alcoholism, which began to have more severe effects on his physical health and his willingness to get into fights, and also on his womanizing, with him seducing every woman he could in every town he visited. In August 1938, Robert made his way back south and came to the place of his final performance, Greenwood, Mississippi. He soon met Beatrice Davis, a married woman with whom he began to have an affair. One night, when Robert went to the juke to perform, Beatrice's husband, R.D. Davis, gave her a jar of corn whiskey that had been poisoned with naphthalene, expecting that she would serve it to Robert, who had a definite taste for corn whiskey. Not knowing what her husband had put into the whiskey, Beatrice did give it to Robert, who drank it. By the time that partiers began to arrive at the juke, Robert was quite sick and was put into a bed at the back of the building. He was later moved to his boarding house, and after that was taken to a plantation where some of his friends lived and put into a bed in a shack. Typically, naphthalene poisoning would have been unpleasant and temporarily debilitating, but not fatal. It was often used in the jukes and in bars to stop troublesome customers from drinking. It is likely that R.D. had not intended to kill Robert, but wanted to warn him about sleeping with other men's wives or to punish him. However, years of hard living and drinking while playing blues meant that Robert had an ulcer in his stomach and varices, enlarged veins, in his esophagus, both of which caused severe hemorrhaging and awful pain. After a few days of howling and screaming in agony, while also coughing and vomiting blood, Robert Johnson died on August 16th. In a weird postscript to his life, John Hammond, a music promoter who had published some misinformation about Robert Johnson, had sent people out to find and invite him to play at a concert celebrating what was, at the time, referred to as race music at Carnegie Hall. Hammond's agents learned that Robert had recently died, so Hammond had a phonograph set up on the stage and played two of Robert's unreleased records. So Robert Johnson finally got the public recognition that he had long craved, but it came after his death. This is, of course, just a brief sketch of Robert Johnson's life. As you can see, there are elements of it that are part of the legend. He was a traveling blues man. He did live a rough life and he did spend at least some time as a sharecropper, although not as much as the legends tell. It appears that his death was a result of poisoning by a jealous husband. All of that's true. But many of the parts that are seared into our memories are false. He was not uneducated or illiterate. He spent most of his childhood in urban environments. He traveled quite broadly by the standards of his day, and he took serious interest in music from an early age, even getting some, admittedly limited, formal education on the subject. He even learned to build his own simple musical instruments. Importantly, by the time Sun House had met Robert Johnson, Johnson was already a skilled guitarist and a professional musician, albeit one who had yet to master the form of blues that Sun House was known for. Johnson's eventual mastery of the blues was due to him working hard at it and finding teachers, most important among them Ike Zimmerman, and not to some supernatural deal. So the questions arise, how did so much bad information become so widely accepted? And specific to the subject of ghost anthropology, how did the legend of Robert Johnson selling his soul at the crossroads come to be? Just as importantly, why and how did it become so widely known? Well, let's start with the bad information making its way into public consciousness. Although there are the usual vital records available for Robert Johnson, as they are for most people, the fact that Robert Johnson is a common name, that he lived in a number of different locations, and that he, as a young man, would sometimes adopt different names, makes it difficult to track him down. In fact, for much of his childhood and well into his teen years, 
He thought of Charles Spencer as his father and went by Robert Spencer as a result. He also went by Willis and was sometimes referred to as Little Dusty after his mother married Dusty, although he didn't care for that. He sometimes would simply give a set of initials, not always his own initials, as his name. All of this makes it very difficult to track Robert. And when records are found, it is necessary to look for corroborating information to ensure that they pertain to this particular Robert Johnson and not someone else by the same name or whatever name he was going by that day. This lack of information often led would-be biographers to make questionable assumptions because there really wasn't much else that they could do. Directly connected to this is the fact that Robert Johnson had a brief flare of popularity when his records came out in the 1930s, but then he faded into obscurity until the music he recorded was re-released in 1961 on a compilation album titled King of the Delta Blues Singers. From the 1960s onwards, musicologists, journalists, historians, and the merely curious began looking for information on Robert, often seeking people who had known him to interview. In many cases, this meant young white people approaching older black people who had lived through, and in some places were still living in, the Jim Crow era of the American South. And that went about as well as you might expect. Even when people who knew Robert Johnson were found and were willing to talk, they were recalling from memory things that had occurred decades earlier, which meant that anyone who was genuinely interested in doing a biography correctly had to cross-reference much of it to find what was true and what was misremembered. And in truth, many of the people doing this sort of research were more interested in meeting the deadline for an article or creating liner notes for a re-release of Johnson's music than in teasing out the complex realities of his life. Of course, in all of this, there is the fact that Sun House did recall Robert Johnson, and he accurately recalled him leaving for a time and then returning as a changed musician, one who had mastered the blues. Unfortunately, Sun House also said that prior to vanishing, Robert Johnson was a talentless and unskilled man with no aptitude for guitar, which, it turns out, was plainly untrue. Whether Sunhouse told the story as he did because of a failure of memory of Johnson's early skill, because it simply made for a better story, or for some other reason, is a matter that Sunhouse has taken to his grave. However, up until recently, it was a rare thing to find a discussion of Robert Johnson that did not rely on Sunhouse's description as if it were completely accurate. Another less commonly cited, but likely very important, place where misinformation enters the story of Robert Johnson is a set of columns written by John Hammond, the organizer of the Carnegie Hall concert where Johnson's records were played. John Hammond was the son of a wealthy white family, but he became fascinated with the music produced by America's black communities. He would later become a record producer and artist promoter, playing a role in the careers of Billie Holiday and Count Basie in the 1930s, and he remained involved even as blues and eventually rock shifted to white audiences, working with Bruce Springsteen and Stevie Ray Vaughan towards the end of his life in the 1980s. During the 1930s, Hammond wrote columns for publications of the American Communist Party. It must be remembered that in the 1930s, interest in the Communist Party was not too terribly uncommon. Even my relatively conservative great-grandfather once attended a Communist Party meeting out of curiosity. Communist association was not the norm, and many people were wary of it, but the advent of the Great Depression and the rise of right-wing movements throughout the world, which included the 1930s resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan in the United States, led to people from all walks of life having an interest in a variety of political ideas that were outside of the mainstream. And this appears to have manifested itself in Hammond's columns on Robert Johnson, describing him as a fairly simple agricultural laborer in Robinsonville, Mississippi, who recorded in Mississippi and not in Texas, one whose musical talents allowed him to express what so many other laborers the world over were surely feeling. It is unclear if Hammond knew that what he was writing about Johnson was somewhere between misleading and false, or if he would have cared. Robert Johnson and his music were symbols that Hammond employed, and it means that many people with an interest in blues music had a written account of Johnson to rely on, even if it was, in fact, 
unreliable. At the Carnegie Hall concert, Hammond gave a brief introduction to Robert Johnson in which he doubled down on the misinformation, stating that Johnson was never a professional musician, but was simply a farmhand from the rural Mississippi Delta. He even went so far as to say that his agents reached Johnson immediately after he died, which is not quite accurate, but made for a great story. The degree to which Hammond knew that he was making up facts versus relating what he believed to be true is open to question, but this helped build the legend of Robert Johnson while obscuring the facts of Robert Johnson. Hammond's description of Johnson at the concert encouraged Hammond's friend, ethnomusicologist Alan Lomax, to set off for the Delta in search of information on Johnson. Lomax did meet some people who genuinely knew Robert Johnson, but his written account also describes an interview with a woman said to be Robert Johnson's mother. This woman had a different name than Johnson's actual mother and spun a story about Robert being fascinated by music at church, leaving home with his guitar, and then finally, as he lay on his deathbed, handing her his guitar and asking her to put it away because he was the Lord's child now and didn't want any part of the devil's music. The story was, of course, nonsense. Robert's family did not know about his death until weeks after the fact. He was known as an adult to have a hostility to church and to religion, likely because of the reaction that he often received for being a blues musician. And he never asked for his guitar to be put away. Whether Lomax had been fooled by somebody putting on a show for him, or Lomax simply made the story up, has been a matter of debate for decades. But again, the story suggests that Johnson viewed his music as being tied to Satan, which adds support to the story of Robert Johnson's deal with the devil. Lomax didn't publish until 1993, so it is debatable how much of an impact this had on the formation of the legend prior to the mid-1990s. But if Lomax had been fooled, then that suggests that there were people ready and willing to provide false information to those who came looking for Robert Johnson. The 1959 book, The Country Blues, by Samuel Charters, further compounded this misinformation, adding claims such as Robert Johnson having been poisoned by his common-law wife immediately after a recording session and claiming that Johnson's recordings were made in a pool hall. Importantly, Charters describes Johnson's singing as being marked by torment and despair, in quotes, with singing that becomes, quote, so disturbed that it is almost impossible to understand the words, unquote. Charters doesn't claim that Johnson's music was supernatural, but his description is certainly compatible with that. From there, magazine articles, liner notes, and books on the blues repeated many of these false claims, and sometimes invented new ones. Between a lack of clear and reliable information, injections of misinformation, and a lot of conflicting accounts, it is no surprise that creating an accurate biography of Johnson has been a difficult task. Indeed, musicologist Robert McCormick spent much of his life and career trying to create an accurate biography, but never succeeded, falling short of gathering sufficient information to complete his work. Indeed, McCormick's biography, and particularly the fact that McCormick seemed unable to finish it, became as much a part of the legend of Robert Johnson as his alleged deal with the devil. The manuscript was published in an edited form in 2023 under the title Biography of a Phantom, eight years after McCormick's death. As a result of all of this, it is not a surprise that there is more misinformation than information readily available about Robert Johnson. Hell, as recently as 2012, the NPR show Radiolab had an episode in which the suggestion was made there may not have even been a real Robert Johnson. But Robert Johnson was a real person who really did record. Understandably, however, it took a lot of effort, archival research for vital statistics in various different cities and counties within the U.S., and making use of the work of various other writers and interviewers who came before them for the authors Bruce Conforth and Gail Wardlow to put together a definitive biography of Robert Johnson titled Up Jumped the Devil. 
all of the earlier false starts and partial biographies were necessary to collect the information that these authors put together in order to finally paint a more or less accurate picture of the man, though this biography has gaps, which the authors admit to. Okay, so that's where the misinformation comes from. But how does the story of the Crossroads deal fit in? Well, let's start with the often used Sun House account. While House never claimed that there was anything supernatural in Robert Johnson's abilities, his downplaying of Robert's abilities on the guitar prior to him going away to learn certainly suggests that this sudden gain in ability was remarkable and strange. This does suggest that something remarkable must have happened for Robert Johnson to have mastered guitar so rapidly by not allowing for the fact that Robert Johnson was both musically gifted and already a notable guitarist, this creates a mystery that demands an answer. For those who pursue the matter further and learn of Robert Johnson's time with Ike Zimmerman, Zimmerman's eccentric place of practice and instruction, that is, the graveyard, is likely to also raise some questions. Indeed, there is a variation on the tale that claims that Robert Johnson made his deal with the devil in a cemetery and not at a crossroads. Again, Zimmerman's daughter is clear that Zimmerman played there because it was quiet and a good place for practice. But as blues already had a reputation as the devil's music, playing it in a cemetery was sure to raise some eyebrows and suggest something dark and supernatural may be occurring. Then there's the reputation of blues music itself and blues musicians. Blues was often described as the devil's music. And while for some folks that was simply a way of dismissing it as low class and not worthwhile, others took it quite seriously in a manner very similar to how the religious right has viewed rock music since the 1970s. And it was not unheard of for blues musicians to incorporate elements of this into their performance personas. For example, P.D. Wheatstraw issued records in which he was listed as the devil's son-in-law and the high sheriff from hell. And some of his songs included a style known as stomps, in which he boasted of his demonic prowess. Blues singer and guitarist Tommy Johnson, not related to Robert Johnson, is also said to have sold his soul at a crossroads for musical talent. And it appears that he would claim this himself as a way of standing out among other blues musicians of his day. So blues musicians were already viewed as being suspect, sometimes supernaturally suspect, and it was not unheard of for them to claim diabolic connections as part of their stage personas. So combining these elements with Sunhouse's incorrect statement about how much Robert Johnson had improved, it's no surprise that a story of Robert Johnson gaining skill through dark dealings began to circulate. A YouTuber who goes by the name of Polyphonic suggests that blues enthusiasts in the 1960s and later confused Robert Johnson with Tommy Johnson, attaching the story of the Crossroads deal to Robert. At the same time, Robert and Tommy knew each other, and it is entirely possible that Robert adopted this as a piece of his own stagecraft. The very notion of the deal at the Crossroads had currency in Black communities in the American South. While, as an anthropologist, I tend to reject the notion of universal cultural myths, the idea that crossroads are powerful is certainly a common belief, showing up in cultures in Europe, Asia, and Africa. When Africans were transported to the Americas as slaves, they brought their belief systems with them, including religion. These religious beliefs would combine with Catholicism in Haiti and give rise to the religion of voodoo. On the mainland, outside of Louisiana, they would form the less formal folk magic known as hoodoo or conjure. In voodoo, if one wishes to speak with God, one must go through Papa Legba, a loa or higher spiritual being who is the guardian of the spiritual crossroads and is often associated with roads and crossroads on earth. Robert Palmer has argued that within hoodoo, Papa Legba, who is often a trickster but generally benevolent towards humanity in voodoo, became syncretized with the trickster elements of the folk version of the Christian devil. Following this syncretism, it wasn't much of a jump from reaching out to Papa Legba for help to making deals with the devil at the crossroads. 
So the notion of making a deal with the devil at the crossroads was already a firm part of both the mythology of the American South and already existed in blues music when Robert Johnson started to become known. Some of the people who knew Robert Johnson would recall when interviewed in the 1980s that he had claimed that he'd obtained his musical skill from just such a deal. But it must be remembered that these folks were recalling conversations that they had with Johnson more than four decades earlier, and that stories of this sort were already well known. So it's entirely possible that Robert Johnson borrowed from Tommy Johnson and made such a claim part of his persona, but it is also possible that this was being misattributed to him. Some will point to Robert Johnson's lyrics as a source for the origins of the story of the deal at the crossroads, but that really doesn't hold any water. As noted, hoodoo beliefs were common in the communities in which Johnson lived and to whom he performed. His songs have references to the devil and hellhounds, but also hot foot powder, crossed stones, and rituals involving brooms to ward off evil, which are all consistent with hoodoo. What's more, the lines about hellhounds pursuing a man may, as the presenter of Polyphonic points out, have been a very powerful symbol to the child or grandchild of someone who had been enslaved and likely had to deal with dogs used to keep them in line or pursue them if they tried to escape. A reference in the song Hellhound on My Trail about hot powder is likely a reference to the use of powder to throw off hounds used by lynch mobs. What's more, like most blues musicians, Robert Johnson would often borrow lyrics from others and rearrange them or insert them into different songs. So there's nothing specific in his lyrics that marks them out as different from other blues songs in terms of supernatural references, or that would have a meaning that would not be clear to a 1930s audience. Even Crossroad Blues, the song that people often point to as evidence of his deal with the devil, says nothing about a deal. It may be about the frustration of being able to find a ride somewhere, or it may be about being at a crossroads in life. The mention in the song about the sun going down may even indicate that the singer is desperate to leave a sundown town. That is, a town with laws on the books prohibiting black people from being within the town after sunset. Getting caught in a sundown town often led to lynching. Johnson never left any notes on these lyrics that would help us decipher his meaning so we will likely never know, but there is nothing to suggest that the song is about a pact with demons. In short, it's possible that the story of Robert Johnson's deal with the devil was circulating in the American South back in the 1930s, but that wouldn't have marked him out as being unusual among blues musicians. Some even adopted claims of satanic connections into their stage personas, so, you know, heavy metal wasn't as novel as many people like to think. But when blues fans think of P.D. Wheatstraw or Tommy Johnson, they don't think of connections with Satan first off. They think of their music and then, as a secondary thought, might consider the stage persona of the devil's son-in-law or the man who sold his soul. But even people who've never heard Robert Johnson's recordings often know the story of his alleged deal. Why is that? Part of it is likely that Johnson was, in his life, not as well known as these other musicians and did not live as long as they did, meaning that when the blues revival began in the 1950s and 1960s, he was a name and a sound, but nothing else. This created a mystery, and mysteries tend to attract speculation. With recordings of this mysterious man being increasingly available, but no other information to go on, it is entirely possible that, as Polyphonic suggests, people misattributed the story of Tommy Johnson's alleged satanic pact at this point. But it is equally possible that people gathered whatever bits of folklore and information that they could glean from various sources, including Lomax's and Hammond's dubious information, and began to shape a legend. By the 1980s, the tale of Robert Johnson's deal with the devil was clearly firmed up and specifically associated with him, and not other blues musicians. Conforth and Wardlow point to a series of articles in music magazines, especially magazines geared towards guitar players, that seem to codify the legend. Perhaps the most important of these is a 1982 article in Living Blues by Peter Goralnik that cites Sun House as the source of the claim that Robert Johnson had sold his soul for musical ability. This is a claim that, as far as I have been able to tell, 
Sun House never actually made. In 1986, the film Crossroads was released, the plot of which involved both Robert Johnson and another actual 1930s blues musician, Willie Brown, having both made the deal with the devil at the crossroads. The film is rather interesting in that it is more of a road trip movie than a supernatural tale until the end when we meet a demon at the crossroads named Legba. Between the film, the print materials, and a growing oral tradition amongst music fans, the story of Robert Johnson's deal with the devil became widespread and well-known, and was often told by people who did not actually believe it. The story may or may not have been tied specifically to Robert Johnson in the South and in blue circles prior to the 1980s, but it truly seemed to become mainstream as Robert Johnson's music was made more readily available through re-releases in the 1980s and 1990s. It's also worth noting that the legend of Robert Johnson was growing during a period when public worry over Satanism and the occult was also increasing. With the latter blowing up into the satanic panic that gripped the U.S. and parts of Europe from the late 1970s through the 1980s, the post-World War II growth in esotericism and the accompanying panic amongst religious conservative people is outside the scope of this episode. But it is, I think, important to note that the legend of Robert Johnson's deal with the devil was growing alongside it. And, of course, a number of rock bands, primarily heavy metal and what would later be termed hair metal bands, dabbled in satanic imagery, likely giving the story of Robert Johnson even more cachet than other stories about the old Delta blues men. In addition, changing attitudes towards the civil rights movement and a heavy effort to rewrite much of the history around it, likely played a role in the story of Robert Johnson's devilish deal becoming popular, although the size of that role is open to debate. During the 1970s and 1980s, much of the religious right, which had been opposed to ending segregation, began to push a notion that since the civil rights movement was in large part organized around churches, they were the logical heirs to that movement. Of course, the reality is that many conservative churches had actually opposed the civil rights movement, but let's not let facts get in the way of a good PR campaign. This also included creating hagiographies of people such as Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks by removing their often radical politics and messy lives to make them into heroic figures that fit the superficial ethics of Reagan-era America. In this sort of setting, a complex figure like Robert Johnson didn't quite fit. You could not turn Robert Johnson into a saint, as was done with some of the Harlem Renaissance artists, and while his music was a formative part of the American musical landscape, it was different enough from what was becoming popular in the intervening decades, and most 1930s recordings were crude enough in quality that Robert Johnson didn't immediately grab a listener of the 1980s. As a result, the context of his music fell away, and one was left with a rumor of a man who had made a dark pact and songs that, stripped of their historic and social context, could be made to seem as if they were Johnson lamenting the cost of his deal rather than dealing with the real world. As this fits some of the stagecraft and also the panic that formed around heavy metal, it seemed to become a natural fit. In essence, just as Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King, not to mention Malcolm X, were made into caricatures in the popular imagination who could be slotted into hero or villain or reasonable and extremist slots, rather than the more complex and challenging people that they actually were, Robert Johnson became a caricature of the real person who became a satanic musician in the minds of many. One final point is worth mentioning. The story of Robert Johnson has a role of tourism in the Mississippi Delta. While not as visible or dominant as the tourism centered on historic plantations, music history tourism is nonetheless important in the region. As a result, many locations may feel the need to play up their connection to various forms of Southern music, including the blues. When you have a story as sensational and unverifiable as that of Robert Johnson, this introduces the incentive to claim various locations as important to his life story. And, of course, the deal with the devil is said by people, and often the tourism board, of many different southern towns to have occurred in their area. I give one specific location in my story in the first part of the episode, 
but there is no shortage of towns that claim to be the location of the crossroads where Johnson sold his soul. And some even have monuments to mark the spot. So there is a financial incentive, not to mention a motive of local pride or notoriety, to perpetuate the story of Johnson selling his soul. In the end, Johnson's true biography is both fascinating and sobering. It is very different from the supernatural claims and does not fit the more mundane, but nonetheless false, claims that he was an illiterate sharecropper with a supernatural talent. He absolutely had talent, but he also had training, and he was a very troubled man. In the end, Robert Johnson walked the line between the Black experience of the early 20th century, both urban and rural, literate but with a smaller amount of education than his friends in the cities, a traveler but someone who did have a place he considered home, there was no demon other than those brought on by his life's troubles. He was, in a very real sense, the epitome of blues music, not just in what he played, but also in how he lived. A couple of postscripts. As mentioned, Robert Johnson had a child out of wedlock. The mother's parents would not allow her to marry Johnson due to his occupation and the music he played. The son, Claude Johnson, didn't even know that his father played music until he was contacted by a musicologist in 1970. All the while, popular bands had recorded Robert Johnson's music, and the rights were owned by record producer Stephen LaVere. However, in the early 2000s, Claude won a lawsuit as the heir of Robert Johnson and went from driving a gravel truck to being rather wealthy, eventually dying in 2015 at the ripe age of 83. At least Robert Johnson's son was able to benefit from his father's work. Also, a Dallas church bought the property in which Johnson had recorded, and in 2011, it reportedly was working to preserve it, a holy order working to preserve the sight of the devil's music. You don't get much more blues than that. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky! <laughs>